are back for yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find me all over the world in 146 publications, print, online, movie reviews, interviews. But every Monday, you can find me right here on AdrenalineRadio.com with Behind the Lens, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And today, as a very special Halloween treat, I know some of you thought this might have been a trick. This is not a trick. This is a real treat. I have sitting right here to my right, Oscar winner, sound editor, Mark Mangini of Formosa Group. Hi, Debbie. Hello, Thank Mark. You. Thank you for having me. It's, I'm, I'm thrilled that Mad Max is still interesting. Well, <laughs> this isn't just Mad Max. Your whole, your whole career is interesting, as we were talking about before the show, and, and as you made fun of me on last when you got your Oscar nomination. Wait, wait. But- <laughs> now. And, you know, I'm very, very thorough. And, you know, for those of you, you know, Mark is actually sick and he still came. So this is really extra special. I, I apologize if you hear the occasional sniffle or if I have to cough into. That's okay. All of the, all the listeners have heard worse than that from me <clears throat> in, okay. the pa- in the past I'll do my years. best. I'm ready. But, you know, I mean, this this is really exciting because you have been – you know, you are such an institution in the world of sound in cinema. <laughs> an institution? You're an institution. You're the first. That's, that's very flattering. Thank you. Oh, come on. You, <laughs> you are a man that helped give sound effects to Scooby-Doo. I did. That was my, my very first job in the industry was as a cartoon sound effects editor at Hanna-Barbera Studios. Okay. So, yeah. see, right there, every kid in the world and every kid inside every adult is now overjoyed because who doesn't love Scooby-Doo? You're not American. You don't like Scooby-Doo. You know, everybody likes Scooby-Doo. Yeah. There's actually a book being written on Scooby-Doo. I was interviewed by a cinema professor from the University of Arizona, and he had heard that I'd worked on it, so I got interviewed. Well, that's exciting. But see, that's so important because so much of cartoon animation is effects. It's everything. It's everything. You know, it's not just it's not just the voices and especially with Scooby Doo with the different, you know, the you know, first we had Casey Kasem voicing Shaggy and Scoob. We've got Matthew Lillard doing it in the most recent incarnations. But the vocal in addition to the vocal tone, so much of cartoons relies on the bam, splat, pow, Batman. Philosophy. That's the genre exactly. I have always when when I I'm asked to give seminars and lectures. One of the things I like to talk about is how valuable that sound training was for me, learning to use sound in a non-traditional way or in a metaphorical way. So, you know, when somebody gets hit on the head, you don't want to hear, you know, that. You don't want to hear the real thing. You want to hear the metaphor version of it. You want to hear birds chirping and you want to hear a, a frying pan clang because it makes it, it amplifies the comedy. And that's the fundamentals, just those are the fundamental tools that all sound designers use. And it was the perfect training ground for me for later in my career. Well, and of course, you mentioned the wonderful frying pan sound. You know, <laughs> I can honestly say that once I heard those, those frying pan sounds as a child in cartoons, and I saw a frying pan hitting a head. You know what I wanted to use on my brothers. <laughs> Wouldn't have been as comedic, I'm quite sure. No, it actually was. <laughs> for you. For me, it was quite comedic. <laughs> but maybe not for them. But, okay, even my father had to laugh when I did it. A little kid, you know, a six-year-old trying to hold, a, you know, a fry pan up. That's they, initiative. That's parents, initi- love, that's, parents love those things. Parents do love that. Yeah. But, you know, initiative is something that you definitely have. I mean, going from doing, you know, breaking ground in cartoons, getting your feet wet there, and then you move on and you start doing all these little things like Star Trek. And I mean, you do you do realize that your work is in the, the biggest franchises in cinema history. Your sound design, it's in Raiders of Lost Ark. You know, the whole Indiana Jones. Right. Die Hard. Right. Lethal Weapon. Right. Star Trek, the original, original Star Trek. Yeah. And even the first one that J.J. did. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you are in, you are in. And Mad Max. And, Mad, and now Mad Max, which is, 
has a reinvigorated huge franchise beyond the cult following it's had for decades. Right. Yeah, I mean, this—it's. Yeah. I've been very fortunate. I, I, I wish I could say this was some sort of Machiavellian plan of mine, but all I ever wanted to do was make sound for movies, so it, it worked out. And the thing, what's you get? You're a repeat customer with with many directors. Yeah, it's like, you know, the, Gary Marshall has come back to you several times. Mar- uh, Ramin Barani has come back to you several times. Gavin O'Connor. Gavin O'Connor uh, has come friend, back to you. Uh, Richard Donner. John Turtletop. Richard Donner. Yeah, that's, 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 that makes it beautiful. <laughs> yeah, what is, what is it that makes them come back to you? You know, it's, it's really simple, I think. It starts with just simply allowing them to feel comfortable knowing that I have their best interests in mind. My goal, I, I try to take my ego out of my work as much as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that reassures filmmakers. I, they, I think they come back because they know no matter what kind of film they make, I'm going to make the film they want to make, not mm-hmm. the film I want to make. That's not to say I don't inject my own <clears throat> personality and, and um, uh, creativity into a project, but it first starts with uh, letting them know that I'm here to put something on screen in the way you envisioned it the first time you read the script. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a comfort factor and it's a friendship. You know, you want it you want it to be fun. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want this to feel like assembly line work, and I don't want it to feel like I you know they. I, I don't want it to be like I was some uh, some part of the filmmaking process that they farmed it out to. I didn't want to be the lab where you sort of put the film in at one end and it gets developed and it comes out nice at the other end. And what happens in between is kind of mystical and mysterious, but you hope it's good. Mm-hmm. I never wanted that to be that. I wanted this to be a collaborative process. So I make I make good friends in that process because we spend lots of time together talking about the movie. And something that I also love is because you worked on the first Star Trek, which was Robert Wise directed. Amazing, yeah. What a you know, gift that was. That's, you know, we're talking golden age direction with Robert Wise. Right. And, you know, now you've worked with J.J., you've worked with George Miller. How does, how do you compare, if you can, to the style, given the change of technology, but into the storytelling and filmmaking mm-hmm. that makes Robert Wise a Robert Wise, but at the same time then makes J.J. who J.J. is for the 21st century? Are you looking for some unifying is there a element? Uni- is there a unifying sure. element? It's, it's really, really simple. Um, all of those gentlemen do one thing critically, and that is that the story always comes first. We're always looking, whether it's sound or it's costuming or it's uh, cinematography, um, you are always looking to use those tools in ways that are motivated based on the story. Mm-hmm. So there's never anything um, arbitrary or capricious or show-offy. I mean, in any one of those films, I could have, without the guidance of the director or without the guidance of the script, I could have created really showy sound work. But there's a good reason why you don't want to do that because it's not in service of the story you're trying to tell. So all of them have that in spades, this this notion that what – and I'm pointing – if you're listening, I'm pointing <laughs> to the – that's the most important thing. What's on the screen, that's our master. It's not even the director. It's what's on the screen is the mm-hmm. master. That guides us always. Mm-hmm. Do you find – with the variety of directors that you have worked for with – the, the level of collaboration, I know we've had many first-time or younger directors on the show and that I've interviewed over the past 29 years, um, and they want to do everything themselves. Right. And even when they bring in other people, they don't want to give up the reins. It's right. They want to sit right there with through sound editing, through video editing. Right. And it's, no, this is it. This is it. Even though with your expertise, they brought you in for your expertise. Right. But they aren't willing to listen to recommendations of expertise. Well, clearly in 29 years, you've heard enough of those stories to know that there's some foundation to that. Yes. That that fundamental mistake. (laughs) Yes. Uh, You know, my greatest successes 
in cinema sound have come when the collaboration was at its fullest bloom. Mm. So that's my way of saying to the young filmmakers, do your best to embrace that. It will serve you. You, you may think that you are the next Steven Spielberg or George Lucas or, I mean, pick, pick, uh, you know, one of the great filmmakers. Um, the, the odds are that you're not. And therefore it's, it's, in your best interests to listen to the people you've surrounded yourself with. And I say this from firsthand experience because all those directors, Robert Wise, uh, Luke Besson, uh, George Miller, Steven Spielberg, uh, Dick Donner, they've all said something very similar to me. And that is, I would be crazy to hire the best in the world at everything in all the departments and not listen to their advice. Mm-hmm. Soderbergh, uh, who's an old – Steven Soderbergh's an old friend of mine. We kind of grew up together and I worked on many of his films. used to say that um, directing was like being Phil Jackson for the Chicago Bulls in the, in the 80s Chicago <laughs> Bulls because he had Michael Jordan and he, he had all those great basketball players. And he said all you had to really do was just collect those great players and put them on the court, put them out on the court and kind of just sit back and let them do their thing mm-hmm. and they're going to win championships. In my experience, filmmaking is, is very similar. Mm-hmm. Get great people. You, that doesn't mean you relinquish um, any, you know, your, your, your need for guidance, but it shouldn't it, – it won't serve you if that, if that kind of tips into sort of megalomania or, or uh, you know, just mm-hmm. obsessive control. Yeah, and it, it's funny you say that because as I had mentioned before, I, you know, had a chance to talk to Mel Gibson about Hacksaw Ridge the other week, and I specifically asked him about his editor, John Gilbert, and his sound team. And it, I asked how collaborative was he? he goes, hey, when I got the best, I'm going to sit back and listen to what they want to do. Mel said that? Yes. He's a bright man. Give him some props for that. He, he gets it. And he's had some of the best in the world doing sound for it. And I'm, I'm hearing, I haven't seen Hacksaw, but I've heard that it's an extraordinary sounding film. And I want to give a shout out for that. Best movie of the year. I can't wait. Don't ruin it for me. I'm seeing it at the Academy next weekend. And, so. and I will. And Rob McKenzie's sound design and editing is impeccable. It is a contender. I want to shout out Kevin O'Connell, who's, who's been his re-recording mixer for his last several movies, who's also an exceptionally gifted sound artist and has been part of Mel's crew for a long time. Yeah. There are so many good sound people out there that I find it very it, – it just upsets me to no end when I see films and the sound is not good. The design is not good because there's no excuse for it. Well, budget could be one excuse. Well, well. how do you answer that? <laughs> you know what? We're going to take a short break right now. If Brian's paying, are you paying attention, Brian? You're not paying attention. No, you're not paying attention. Okay, we're going to take a short break, and we will be right back. We'll let Mark rest his voice. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to take a drink and take a lozenge, and we'll be right back. This is Terry Crews, actor, former football player, game show host, father of five, and all-around big dude. I'm also an expert on drama. I know all kinds of drama. There's the good kind that comes with having a house full of kids. There's the bad kind, like season-ending injuries. There's the necessary kind, like having an agent in Hollywood. And there's silly drama, like the drama around my percolating pectorals. And then there's the drama you can skip. Skip the drama that comes with not having your high school diploma or equivalency. Find free adult education classes near you and finish your high school diploma. Visit finishyourdiploma.org. Or text diploma to 97779. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop to opt out. That's diploma to 97779. And leave the drama to actors like me. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ed Council. It's time to get crazy with Crazy Bitches 2. That's right. The team behind Crazy Bitches is back and needs your help to bring Crazy Bitches 2 to life. You can back the film and do your holiday shopping at the same time thanks to fun swag and exciting opportunities that will ship just in time to put under or on your tree. Christmas ornaments turn deadly when mommies behave badly and someone can't take it anymore. So go crazy. Join the Crazy Bee Nation and go to the Indiegogo campaign at 
igg.me backslash at backslash crazy bs2 crazy b nation crazy bitches too and we are back welcome back to behind the lens with my very very special guest formosa groups incredible sound editor and designer mark mangini thank you Thank you. I am thrilled, and and again, we must thank Mark because Mark is here sick today. So, and it was very nice of him to come in and brave the Halloween trick or treaters out there. I didn't see any. <laughs> you, you might. Well, you know, before we delve more into sound design, Brian, because we, you know, we do have some listeners that get very upset if we don't do this every week, which I, I don't understand because they can just look it look it up themselves. Just kidding, because I'm going to do it. Don't ever Google what I'm about to talk about. What's going on? Oh, what are we doing? I will let you introduce me, Debbie. Well, here, because we're getting ever closer. The big countdowns to Star Wars. We used to do this backwards. We used to look Uh, at uh, Star Wars Episode Eight first, but now because Rogue One is so close, hmm. we're about 45 days, 12 hours, 42 minutes, and as soon as I am done with this sentence, 38 seconds to go. I only show up to work now for Debbie because I am lined up right outside my movie theater, and uh, they're very kind. They haven't kicked me off the premises yet, but eventually they'll have to because I'm making a mess with all the food wrappers everywhere that I'm leaving. But the cool part about this is the closer we're getting to this movie, the more merchandise is starting to come out. I remember you and I were speaking about every week we seem to, to mention, we're still waiting for the Nissan thing to drop. I, I, or or was it Nissan or who was it? That Nissan. Was? Nissan is, is uh, teaming up with Rogue One, so I'm hoping that... Uh, We're hoping for car giveaways or something. That, yeah, a, a <laughs> Nissan themed car, I mean, I, Star Wars themed Nissan. Yeah. I, 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 you know, what does that look like? You know, the popcorn buckets are now in the AMC theaters. <laughs> the Rogue One popcorn buckets. Uh, so we have that. But oh no, there's you guys are geeks. There's, oh yeah, there's a, Well, you know, I get the press releases of what's coming down the line, and I know how much Brian loves Star Wars and mm-hmm. Star Trek, and it's like it, it's just amazing. It's like. Gillette. We're gonna, what are we going to have? We're gonna oh, yeah, have, we're going to the shaving we're, cream we're, and all that. Yeah. We're going to have Gillette, Rogue One shaving cream sure. and razors. A That's Felicity Jones-style yeah. uh, razor. I see the fit. <laughs> and there was another product. Oh, uh, cereal. Uh, cereal. Yeah. General Mills. Right. Yeah, I need I need my cereal. Yes. Uh, I, I love tie Like, if you go to my house, I, I have all these tie-ins because if there's one thing that these companies know is that they're going to get money out of me at least. Like, I remember when Jurassic World, when uh, the, co- the the company that ha- that was in the first one where he would ha- hide the uh, the dinosaur DNA, and it always escapes me what the company was. But they released these cans where it had the dinosaurs on them. I have, like, about five or six in my room. Barbasol, thank you. Uh, have Ed here telling me. Uh, but All right, so Rogue One, but if you, if uh, you want to... I mean, the other ones so far, I, I'm, it just made me sad looking at this number right now. Uh, episode 8 is 409 days, 12 hours, and 40 minutes. Is that a countdown ago. calendar you I have? I have it set up, yeah. Wow, that's beautiful. I look at it every day. Yeah. <laughs> well, we did this, I think we did this for the first time uh, when we were at like 120 days away from yeah, Rogue we, One. Yeah, it was like a joke. And then people were like... People like look forward to it. They were like... You didn't do Star Wars. Okay. And so it became, right. and we had guests coming in, and they were like, well, where's the Star Wars countdown? Mm. So, okay. All right. So I understand now. Yeah, it, it's, it's and good. We, no, no new uh, sales. Usually I give them sales, too. Like Walmart last week was selling uh, Episode 7 merchandise for half off. So if you didn't pick up mer- Episode <laughs> <laughs> Go check your local Target or Walmart because they're starting to get they're starting to sell all their uh, original merchandise at half off. So I picked up a couple of figures uh, last week, but for uh, for the most part, everything Rogue One's coming out. There's a lot of, and I told Debbie that there's one at Disneyland in particular that I'm going to purchase for her. But I'm going to wait closer to the holiday season to to, to give it to her because she's going to love it. Okay, it's something that I saw and I was like, yeah, that's a Debbie item. I'm afraid, but. Yeah. And, and since you know I'm an annual pass holder at Disneyland, nothing nothing's popped up at Disneyland just yet for Rogue One. But as okay. soon as something I see I see something coming up, I will let you know. Okay. Yeah. So that's the Star Wars update. Well, thank you for that incredible Star Wars update, Brian. You are welcome. Yes, we are full service here. You know, merchandising where you can get it cheap. You know. You should be tracking the Mad Max sequels. I mean, isn't that? I mean, there's all sorts of oh. online chatter about what's going. There's to happen. chatter, but there's nothing official. No, there isn't. I can tell you, and I can confirm that that there is nothing. Yes. Official. Well, if there is something, do you think you would be coming back? 
to work on it? I would love to. I can't confirm or deny participation in said sequel. So, yeah, since we brought up Mad Max, let, let's let's talk about Mad Max and that lovely little thing <clears throat> called an Oscar that you got. Okay. You know, because Shoot. I got I had the ultimate thrill of getting to talk to Mark. I think it was an hour and a half after you got the nomination. Yeah. Yeah. And you were so excited. I was it was a I was over the moon. Yeah. As as well you should be, even though that was your fourth nomination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I was over the moon because I, I felt as though it was it was an affirmation that the community and, you know, to be nominated, only your peers, only the sound branch of the Academy does the nomination. So that meant that my peers, other sound experts, saw it as a really worthy candidate. So that feels really, really good. But it was tempered with a great deal of anxiety. One, because it was up against a Star Wars. And to me, Star Wars was the movie to beat only because it's Star Wars. It's an excellent piece of work. And as I imagined the typical Academy voter, I thought, well, you know, it's great, but people will the, – the, the people who don't understand the sort of nuances of great sound will think, well, yeah, it's, it's, I'm voting Star Wars because it's one of those great science fiction movies. Mm-hmm. So I thought I didn't have a chance in the world. And then, you know, that's also tempered by knowing I'm up against The Revenant, which we talked a little bit yeah. about earlier, which was also an, an extraordinarily uh, – an extraordinary accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And I, so I knew it was – it's always great to be nominated and I knew there was great competition. Well, and it's worth mentioning that The Revenant was also – the sound was from – some lovely gentleman at Formosa Group. Yeah, Lon Bender, who's an extremely talented and creative man. Well, yeah, your I, lovely publicist, Ed, knows my love for Lon. And, <laughs> and, you know, he, he's, a, he's an incredible guy. And, yeah. You know, they now, at the, at the award ceremony, they sit you all together in this little pod right by the mm-hmm. stage so that you can get to the stage quicker and say what you need to say. And Lon, true to form, as soon as you know my name was read, he stood up like a gentleman and gave me a big hug, and I thought that was that was just a beautiful thing. So did Martine, his co-nominee mm-hmm. for Revenant. Yeah, so it was really nice. But you know, there's an added thing, Brian. Do you have clip one queued up? Uh, yeah, give me a uh, give me a bit. Oh, are you going there? I'm 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 going there. You going there? All right, because... I, I'll have a chance to explain myself. Well, <laughs> no. <laughs> This will need no explanation, but I think people will find this very interesting. Let me. Are you ready, Brian? I don't know what you're about to do, but I you, think I do. You don't know what I'm about to do. All right. But an added element to the Oscars for Mark is that Mark is also on the Board of Governors. So right after he got his nomination, what's the first thing I had to ask him about? And you had a very difficult task here. You're on the Board of Governors for Sound. Yep, that's right. And how does that impact um, getting yourself nominated? Well, uh, let's be very clear. I don't try to get myself nominated. (laughs) And and hopefully no one else does either. The the goal is for all of us to do exceptional sound work and have it be recognized on the merits Mm -hmm. by our peers. So... Uh, you know, uh, my goal is to just put my nose to the grindstone and, and, and do the coolest <laughs> town. And hopefully, uh, you, you know, I get a phone call from a buddy who just came back from the arc light and says, man, I just heard Mad Max. It sounded unbelievable. So that's that's my approach. Maybe others approach it differently. You know, being a governor makes it a little delicate because um, you, you, you might assume that because I'm a governor of the sound branch, I have some kind of influence over these decisions, which I don't. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, I must be very cautious at all times to never give the appearance that I would have some kind of yeah. influence over these words, which I don't. Well, you know, having said that, this is sound that is cooler than that girl. That's the, that's the byline. Let's, let's put that. <laughs> I mean, this is. I mean, the sound design on Mad Max Fury Road is just amazing. Thank you. As subtle as the sound is with the Revenant, yep. the vi- it, This is the polar opposite with vibrancy and. You know, incredible energy. And I would also like to add inventiveness because, you know, whereas Revenant takes place in a world we kind of recognize, Mad Max doesn't. Mm-hmm. 
You know, that's one of the interesting things with Mad Max as well, because we're now revisiting this character, you know, 40-some years after George. And so, so, so I want to add to that. Yes. If, if you're going to bring up gov- um, my governorship and you're going to uh, drop some expletives, <laughs> there's a little bit ex- of explaining to do. Well, yeah, but that is the way to describe that sound. No, that's good. So um, as I heard my name announced on uh, – of Oscar Eve night, and I ascended the stage. Um, I became overcome with um, joy and and gratitude. And as I looked out from the stage of the Kodak Theater out into the audience, I saw we were one of the last awards to be recognized for Mad Max. Already five of my who had, people who had become good friends. The uh, you know, Jenny Bevins, the costumer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my whole team was not my team. The Mad Max team was out there and there was George Miller. And I was so we had we had become this little band of gypsies traveling from award show to award show. We developed this really great family bond. And I was so overcome with emotion that I raised the Oscar and I said, can I can I? drop the f-bomb on this show no okay i dropped the (laughs) f-bomb i said effing mad maxers on live television on abc and i was bleeped uh it turns out because abc would do something like that and the irony of that of of the sound because all my friends asked me about it later the sound guy having his sound drop out on his acceptance (laughs) speech the irony of that is not lost on me so i know so and and I'm, i'm saying it because you brought up the governor thing there was some amount of concern at the board and with the other governors, that that wasn't proper comportment for a governor. That a governor it's, shouldn't drop the f bomb. Oh, 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 no, don't. And no. I don't disagree. But I got to tell you, I was in like another altered state. I, I couldn't. I didn't script that. I didn't plan that. That's a moment. That is a once in a lifetime moment for many people. That they will. It will never. You're not Meryl Streep. So <laughs> now, if she would do it at this point, okay, that might be a little questionable. Your four nominations, your first Oscar, a killer film. I fully expect that. <laughs> Thank you. From ev- ev- from right. every. You forgive me. Oh God, she's. <laughs> yeah, I have no problems with something like that, and right. it's very ironic you mention that because on my website on MovieSharkDeblore the piece that I did two pieces on winners on 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 you and on one other. And I have that very picture of you. Oh, is that right? Yeah, that's, I just dropped the f bomb. That's the picture so that you I can hear that as you it, <laughs> as you look at the picture. Yes, and you know, and and the night of the Oscars, I knew what was coming out of your mouth. I knew why they were bleeping. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. And that is why we bleep here because we are live. Right. Yeah. No five second delay like they do on the networks. New. Right. New. 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 Yeah. Yeah, and we and we want to be FCC compliant at all times. You know, I'm I'm reminded of. I want to get back to something you said a little bit earlier about collaboration. Mm-hmm. That night, as I was driving to various parties, Variety uh, called me and asked for a, a quote, and it, and, <clears throat> and the quote I gave, and I won't say this exactly the way I said it, but it's apropos of, of collaboration. I said George Miller. Um, Bucking Hollywood tradition hired a team of seasoned professionals Mm -hmm. and let them do what they do best and look at the result. And so I think that's that's an important uh, way to look at Mad Max and the way to look at the world and look at our film community that – Though I'm 60 years old, and I would argue very many of my fellow nominees and winners were too, we still have some, we still have some juice. And George recognized the value of hiring really good people. It's not just – he just recognized that value. But And that's something that is so key that a lot of people forget. Experience does pay off, and there is a reason that you want people with experience, especially when you're getting to the level of filmmaking – that George Miller is at, yeah. that any of these, that Gavin O'Connor, the Gavin's at, yeah. um, you, you get to this level, even earlier in your career and in his career, Richard Donner, yeah. you don't get to these budgets and to these levels by ignoring experience. I believe that. You know, granted, there are some flashes in the pans that come up. Sure. There are people that come up with low budget, no budget. Yeah. 
but there comes a breaking point where you have to, to make that leap into experience. Right, right. You know, one of the, the bits of magic in Mad Max is that George understood the value of the what I call the iterative process, this mm-hmm. constant process of refinement. We were on that film for a long time, and we never felt as though, though unlike many uh, um, young directors, he was always very sure of what he wanted, but he always knew it could be improved upon, mm-hmm. and that's what he allowed us to contribute to. So we would revisit scenes regularly and ask ourselves, ask each other, how can we make this better? How can we get closer to the narrative? How can we how can we tell this story better with sound every time we look at this movie? Mm-hmm. And that was a it was you know it's like when you're a furniture maker and you use that finer and finer grit sandpaper till it's polished to a high gloss. We just kept finding finer and finer mm-hmm. grit sandpaper to improve it. Yeah, and something else that, that I find extremely interesting about your career, Mark, is that you so many of the same actors you have worked with them at different points of their career set tom hardy perfect example tom hardy on warrior tom hardy on mad max Mm -hmm. does that impact uh, through the years as you come back to a particular voice of an actor uh, working in a different film a different genre type does that at all enter into the editing process for you of how you might interpret them tonally or you know i I wouldn't say directly but maybe indirectly it might i mean a footnote is that in the last day of the mix on mad max george decided to change a line for max Mm -hmm. he's sitting at the motorcycle of furiosa and he's explaining that they have to go back to the citadel and he couldn't bring tom back in and maybe apropos of your comment I knew Tom's voice. So I went in the back room with a little recorder and I just recorded, it's nothing but salt. And that's my voice in the movie for Tom Hardy. (laughs) So somehow I channeled Tom Hardy because of my experience on two films. I've I've always found that interesting. And even when you go back with with the same director multiple times and work with them. That's where that really comes into play. Can you talk, give a little more depth and insight into that for for filmmakers? Because I think a lot of them, it doesn't occur to them. Well, you know, you as you would imagine, as you begin to work with a filmmaker on a regular basis, you develop a shorthand and a trust, and you discover the things that they do and don't like. Um, I, I've done ten movies for Joe Dante, and Joe has a thing about Foley. And if, do I need to explain what Go Foley ahead. is? Talk Foley, about Foley is this process whereby we record, for lack of a better term, the incidental sounds in a scene like a rustling of a newspaper or the footsteps of someone walking across a room because they're not captured by the microphone during production. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a labor-intensive process and it requires two people in a studio to watch a screen and imitate the movements of the actors and you end up with 20, 30 tracks of sound and that's one of the many food groups, one of the flavors of sound mm-hmm. that we add to a movie, Joe just hated Foley. So I knew that to save all of us time in a mix, before I would bring Joe in to listen to what we had done, I would just – I would have a different sensibility with how I blended Foley sounds into our mm-hmm. mix than I would with another director who loves Foley and wants to hear every little rustle of the shirt mm-hmm. and click of, of the fingernails. The and, snap of the snaps it, on, yeah. Exactly. Some people love that. And every movie creates its own aesthetic in that regard. It's not like Joe was immune to using it. Sometimes we had to. If a, shoot, a scene was shot without sound, you had to supplement it. But he had a sensitivity to it that where we'd keep it lower than other directors. So you begin to learn the kinds of things that your filmmakers like and don't like And you just save them the anxiety and the anguish Mm -hmm. of having to suffer through it when – because you see that a lot with first-time pairings of a sound uh, designer, supervisor, and and a director because they haven't had the conversations yet. They haven't had the battles uh, Mm -hmm. about what sound should be doing. So it just makes everything go smoother and you achieve a better result. I mean, Gavin, you know, Gavin I just love because he's one of the world's great collaborators and Gavin will call me at every phase of filmmaking, mm-hmm. including in the script phase. Wow. And, and he'll ask me, you know, I'm having trouble with this scene. 
can sound help tell some of the story where I don't think words are going to do a good job. You know, this is visual. You know, arguably, cinema is visual storytelling, but it's also sonic storytelling. Mm-hmm. He's smart enough to know that even in the script, he could write in a line, character, Joe hears something off stage, mm-hmm. or Joe has a flashback to a childhood memory, and that we would do that with sound. Now he's out of the woods. Uh, Gavin will call me during production. In every step of the phase of, of, of the phases of making a motion picture, he'll include me in that. Mm-hmm. And so that begins that trust, and I begin to understand his sensibilities. Yeah, and I'm glad. I'm glad you're talking about Gavin because, you know, Gavin just directed The Accountant, and it's something I said to you before the show that I noticed. You know, with your sound in Conspiracy Theory with Mel Gibson. And now with the accountant, Ben Affleck, there are so many layers to the sound and it's sound that the average person is going to dismiss. Uh, freshest in everybody's mind right now will be the accountant. And right. because of the autistic nature of Ben Affleck's character, and he repeats this under his breath, this little childhood rhyme and mantra all the time, right. we can't make out what it is, but... Your editing is so layered, so meticulous. We hear that. We see the lips barely move. We hear it. And as the film goes on, it slowly gets a little bit clearer depending on the situations. But it's always there. And it's in tandem with footsteps or the sound of the glove on the gun moving in the hallway. And you could still, you knew that layer of sound was there. It is just, it is flawless sound. But that's just simple storytelling. I mean, that, that's the Solomon Grundy nursery rhyme that is very popular. Well, you don't know about very popular, but it's certainly in the vernacular. And that was a, a sound a signature that we needed to leverage because that was a signal of his sort of ADD, the ADD side of his mm-hmm. character. That's, that's the way he would calm himself. And that was, that's a signal, that's a sonic signal to the audience that you didn't need to write expository words for mm-hmm. to tell the audience a little bit of the story. If you heard him chanting that nursery rhyme, that meant he had anxiety and had mm-hmm. to calm himself down. That character isn't always anxiety-filled, but that's a way of using sound to tell the story without having somebody to say on camera or to another character, I need to chant this now because I need to calm down. Right. So it's just it's cinema shorthand and it's sound shorthand. And we saw that also with Mel Gibson's character in Conspiracy Theory. Yeah, with, that's right. I've his, forgotten about that. See? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't just sit here and you really listen, in. girl. That's, that's <laughs> impressive. And of course, when people watch the video of this week's show, whenever it gets out, you will see we have sitting here my original conspiracy theory VHS. Very rare. We have Very Mad rare. Max here. So, yeah, we have. I, I, I like to do a visual retrospective as well. But no, that is something that immediately as I'm listening and watching The Accountant, I immediately flashed a conspiracy theory uh, and what you did with Mel's character there. Interesting. Uh, you know, for me, every movie is kind of like a snowflake. It's different. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't think about what I've done in the past because I try not to repeat myself. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important for any artist to always be looking for the fresh perspective on everything. So I, I'm glad – it's lovely that you <laughs> saw that connective tissue because it's there but I wasn't thinking about it. But somehow, perhaps subconsciously, I was influenced because I saw the value. Mm-hmm. And you know, and similarly, your attention to detail and layering, you look at a film like Warrior and mm. with the boxing and the fighting and the ambient nature. Because I know you guys shot that, I think, outside Pittsburgh. Right. right. Um, but it's set in the Philly, you know, right. suburban Philly area. Right. It, and it's, Pittsburgh serves very well. For Philly, and as only you would know that. Only I'm from I Boston, would, so <laughs> and of course, I'll take your outside word. Pittsburgh also works very well for you and McGregor's current film, American Pastoral, <laughs> that is set in Newark, New Jersey. Imagine that. <laughs> but your atten- the sound, not only just the ambient sound of the region. Yeah, that, but, was, that was critical that we find all those ex- authentic sort of uh, above ground train sounds and cityscape sounds, mm-hmm. so that it felt like where you were. Yeah, and also right down to the leaves and then at the shore, down at the shore for the big Atlantic City fight, you know, the the Atlantic City shore has a very distinct sound. 
I know that I grew up on the East Coast. I knew that See? sound. Yeah. I, I didn't even think about that. I mean, it's interesting that you take that scene. It's, a, it's a sort of an obscure scene. But I know the sound of those rolling waves because I grew up on Cape Cod and I know the East Coast surf patterns. I didn't think of it intellectually when I combed through my library to find that surf sound. I just went to the one that I knew that was right because I knew what it should sound yeah. like. Yeah. And that's something that I so appreciate for films that are set in regions that I have been in, that I grew up in, I mean, you get to the East Coast, you get to Philly, you get to the Jersey Shore, you get yeah. to Delaware, Maryland, all, and even down south, because yeah. I've spent time down south yeah. in rural Georgia. It's very distinctive. Yeah, the bugs are different, the crickets, the everything, the birds, you know. It's all- now, for all of those sounds, you have a sound – do you have a personal sound library? <laughs> Is there a sound library that you go to? Because I know every filmmaker out there – I'm sure they're getting emails by the dozens, as I also, as I even get, from, oh, we have a sound library. Download right. 100,000 free sounds today. Sure. I, I do have a sound library. It's, it's an indispensable tool, much as um, I believe in this notion that every film should be uh, made as fresh as possible, and you should record as many fresh ingredients as possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, the obvious metaphor is the great chefs of the world would never consider using canned peas or a, you know a, 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 um, a preserved good for a, a great dish. Then we should consider using canned sound. But the realities are that, except on the biggest budget product projects. I don't have the money or the time Mm. to record everything new. So I push that envelope as much as I can. I'll record as many of the really critical sounds that I think make the texture of the film. Mm -hmm. And then I'll use library sounds for the rest. And so to be a sound geek like myself, you have to love sound. You have to love to collect sound. I'm like a sound museum. I like to curate sound. Mm -hmm. I like to to listen to it. I like to go out in the field and capture it. Mm -hmm. So I have a great library, and it's constantly growing. You can never rest on your laurels. I've recorded, you know, the classic example is a door close. Every sound person has a massive collection of door closes. I have 40-year-old recordings, and I have ones I did yet last week, because you can never have enough, and you can never have a a fresh enough recording of those sounds. On Warrior, the real challenge from Gavin was he wanted the fighting to sound correct. Mm -hmm. And his feeling, as was mine, is that most fight movies, especially ring fight movies, get it wrong. They they kind of Hollywoodize the fights. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a hit is juiced up with the sounds of breaking cabbage and, you know, uh, hitting a, stabbing a turkey or whatever the the tropes are for for sound design. And he said to me, just make it sound like what it really sounds like. So I got a pair of four-ounce gloves, and I beat everything in sight, including myself. And those were – no, I mean, honestly, nobody took a picture of this, but I – in my studio, I have a dead quiet studio. I stripped to my boxers, and I punched my arms and my chest and my thighs – and my cheek and my forehead and and I got the real sound of a real fist with a real four ounce glove on a real body part and we didn't juice them up and that's what you hear in the movie because that's what we wanted we wanted verisimilitude because we felt it made the punches that much more violent you got the violence by not overplaying it Mm -hmm. well let's take another short break so Mark can rest his voice drink water and and cough and we'll be right back (laughs) thank you It's time to get crazy with Crazy Bitches 2. That's right. The team behind Crazy Bitches is back and needs your help to bring Crazy Bitches 2 to life. You can back the film and do your holiday shopping at the same time thanks to fun swag and exciting opportunities that will ship just in time to put under or on your tree. Christmas ornaments turn deadly when mommies behave badly and someone can't take it anymore. So go crazy. Join the Crazy Bee Nation and go to the Indiegogo campaign at igg.me backslash at backslash Crazy BS2. Crazy Bee Nation. Crazy Bitches 2. And we are back. Welcome back to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, and with me is our very special guest, Oscar winner Formosa Sound Group Sound Editor, Mark Mangini. <sighs> Yes, okay. Brian didn't have applause ready for that. So, you know, bad, bad, bad. Now, I want to ask you, Mark, because you've been doing this for 40 years or thereabouts. 40. 40. You're right. Well, yeah, because you started Scooby-Doo in 76. Exactly right. 
So it's now been 40 years. How has technology aided in your creativity and inventiveness with sound? Well, it's pretty pretty simple, actually. It's allowed me to realize more quickly and more accurately that which I hear in my head. There was a, a, a physical set of limitations. When I first started, sound was recorded on sprocketed film, and it was only one or two channels of audio, and you could only listen to one track of sound at a time. And you had to edit on these large sort of steampunk kind of editing devices called moviolas, and all of it was an impediment to getting to what you, were, you heard in your head to trying to create. Digital tools have made that all just a lot quicker um, and a lot more facile. You can hear hundreds of channels of audio if you'd like. You can make an edit very quickly. You won't – the physical media of film 40 years ago could easily break and tear and a, a, an intricate piece of work that you had done could be lost in a heartbeat when it got sucked into the machine. Mm. Uh, so none of those things happen anymore. Of course, we still have to contend with – the uh, the hard drive crash, but hopefully, if you you know follow good hygiene and good housekeeping procedures, you don't have to ever suffer that. <laughs> so it is just a, it has facilitated my ability to realize what I hear in my head that much more quickly. Mm. Now, with all of the different soundscapes that we now have available in theaters, we have Dolby, we've got Dolby Atmos. There's still you know IMAX. There's Oro, IMAX. Does that Im- does that impact? The editing process, the sound editing process. Absolutely, because you've got that many more speakers to fill with sound. And, you know, the, the buzzword now is immersive sound. And arguably these formats have given that to us by enveloping the audience with speakers everywhere, above you, around you, behind you. And it's a great tool to utilize if you know how to utilize it to place the audience in the middle of an immersive environment. It's part of um, that, that technique that all filmmakers have to master, which is um, the uh, suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. When you walk into a, a theater, you know what you're about to see isn't real, and it's incumbent upon the filmmaker to convince you that it is. One of the ways we do that in, with sound is to cre- use these immersive sound systems to put you in an environment much like you might experience in real life. Because, of course, when we're in real life, we hear sound from all around us. So if you leverage that correctly, Mm -hmm. you can immediately place the audience's subconscious critical mind at ease so that their conscious mind can concentrate on the story. Mm -hmm. So these, these immersive sound formats have been a positive boon to all filmmakers in allowing them to use sound as a tool to create greater verisimilitude, and allow the audience to suspend disbelief. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. Do you have a preference to the kind of – the ultimate sound that something will be played in? I don't know what you mean by ultimate sound. Well, when you're – if you're design editing sound and designing sound for a project that is going to be played in in Atmos, Mm -hmm. um, is that preferable – does the sound system fit the film? Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, because um, some of them, yes, I, some you, people will want to do, you know. Oh well, it's there, so let's do it. But can you fill that much sound yes. for that film? Yes, um, I, I think all films can benefit from the uh, um, benefits you get from immersive sound formats, even with the simplest parlor drama. Mm-hmm. The more you can convince the audience that, that what they're experiencing is real, even if it's two people talking in a room, if I can surround you with a very subtle atmosphere of the sound of that room, you are more convinced that this is actually happening. Mm-hmm. So every film can benefit from it. You just have to intelligently utilize those tools. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another – I had another thought about – I mean, they're all, I'm not going to – they're all good formats. Right. Uh, you know, the, there's a philosophical argument that we could have and that it occurs in the sound community where while it's wonderful to build a, 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 a soundtrack in Dolby Atmos or, or IMAX or Oro, um, most 
uh, audiences won't see them that way. Like, currently, that's only a fraction of the theaters in the world. Right. And so there's this argument that goes, shouldn't we be spending our sound mixing and design time on the format that most people will see it in and build for that? And then we'll worry about the immersive formats later. I don't have a particular take on that. Um, both out, both arguments are valid. I, I think because I'm more of a purist, I lean towards build for the highest possible um, quality, and then uh, the rest will sort of take care of itself. But I think there's a valid argument that if most people are going to go to their local cinema and see it in 5.1, mm-hmm. maybe that's the way we should spend most of our time. So mm-hmm. I get that. Yeah, I mean, it's it can go either way. And sometimes I wonder if when people are designing for you know, the Atmos experience, that when it plays out in 5.1, it's a little overblown. Interesting. I haven't experienced that. Yeah. Can you describe that overblown in what way? Overblown, that the sound is greater than the story. Ah, interesting. Well, you know, I've seen the opposite. I've done a number of films where we mixed in 5.1 or 7.1, and then we were given a few days to do an Atmos upmix, mm-hmm. meaning we didn't we didn't mix in um, native Atmos, and so we had to kind of tart it up without having ever actually planned that from the beginning. And so you have to ask yourself, why am I doing anything any differently? Why am I putting more sounds in the surrounds or more sounds in the subwoofer when we didn't do it for the the body of the work? So I've seen that version mm-hmm. of it. I'm not sure sure I've seen it the other way around. I've seen I've seen both and. Then I've seen some like, and I hate to say it, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. The Avengers, one of the worst sound mixes, editing I jobs. Saw, I never saw the Avengers. You can never hear Scarlett Johansson's dialogue in any of the fight scenes. That That's a cardinal sin on any film. Yeah. If you cannot understand the dialogue, that's not, that's, a, that's, you, you, you should have to do some penance for that. Yeah. I don't know. No, that's, that's, <laughs> the, the, that just <clears throat> perturbs me to no end on films when, if the, the dialogue is there for a reason, yeah, I want to hear it. Well, <clears throat> and certainly um, uh, that's true. You know, for ninety ninety five percent of a, of a film, there are points in a film where uh, uh, dialogue is disposable. And I'm thinking only because you guys brought up Star Trek Four earlier. Mm-hmm. I remember a, a, an early conversation with Leonard Nimoy where the, they've decided to whip the, the the Enterprise into this special maneuver around the sun to go back in time and Leonard correctly had the actors screaming you know on the set to get over what would be this immense sound of warp drive and Mm -hmm. and that maneuver and at some point in the mix Leonard just said just you know just keep pushing those sounds push I don't care what they're saying we know what's happening we know they're in peril whatever it is that they're saying we get it visually we can overwhelm the dialogue and it will make it better so there's obvious narrative moments where you can oh. get away with that. But most of the time, you should yeah. hear the people talking. You know, now you bring up Leonard, you know, who is the world, the world, the galaxy reveres Leonard. Yeah, I hope so. They, and they should. As, as because well, as a man and as a filmmaker, he, he was wonderful. I mean, beyond impressive. But, you know, you also did... Three Men and a Baby, which Leonard <laughs> directed. So, Indeed. tell me, tell me, how how do you approach doing sound for Three Men and a Baby versus Star Trek? <laughs> uh, well, in the case of Three Men and a Baby, the, the obvious challenge is getting the baby sounds right. As it may not seem obvious that though they have babies on the set and they they always bring in twins you know so they can yes. not have them on camera too long they don't you can't make a baby make sound on cue when the script says and the baby cries when when uh, Tom Selleck picks him up that doesn't happen <laughs> so it's incumbent upon us to make the babies look and sound believable so it's a matter of recording believable baby sounds and then fitting them to the image so that it looks like they actually might have uttered those sounds. I, I had a, I have a picture which I had I'd known you would have brought up Three Men and a Baby, I would have brought it, but to get good baby sounds, and it's not easy to do because I can't make them make sound either, even, nor could their parents. You know, you can sound like Tom Hardy, but you can't make baby sounds. I can't do that. So what I did do is I bought a, um, a Big Bird 
hand puppet, and I bought an Ernie hand puppet from Sesame Street. And I took their no I took the beak off of a big bird, and I took the nose off of Ernie, and I put instead acoustophone and hid a microphone in it. And so what I would do is I would anybody who had a baby because I called everybody said, "Can I record your baby?" I'd go over their home around feeding time, and I would hide under the crib. And I would I would do goofy like little Sesame Street things with these puppets that had a microphone pointed right you know so I was getting the good stuff right really close to the baby's mouth and I would inevitably get cute little coos and curdles and whines and things like that and when they got fed up with me they'd cry but I've got because what you what I discovered the hard way was that when I came in with my boom pole and a big gray thing and a metal thing staring at the baby. You didn't get sound. So I had to be inventive in how I was going to capture that sound. Do you have a favorite way of capturing sound when you're going out like you're you're doing your door closings or baby <laughs> sound? Do you like going out with a boom? Yeah, and- I love it. It's, my, it's probably my favorite part of the job because you get to meet the strangest people and you get put in the weirdest circumstances. Well, uh, when I did um, a very obscure dinosaur movie called Baby Legend of the Lost that predates Jurassic Park by mm-hmm. several years, I wanted to capture uh, you know, big, big game sound to make the dinosaur voices out of it. So we recorded elephants, and one time I got caught in an elephant pen. Doug Hempel and I, one of the world's great sound mixers, oh, Doug wow. Hempel and I were tethered together. I was Boompole, he was Nagra, and we got charged by an elephant. And we had to like, you know, run for our lives and leap over the barrier to escape so it's it's oh it's things like this you know recording vehicles and crashing them by accident and just i can't tell you how many bizarre moments have happened to me in my life recording sound out in the field okay, I, I'm, I mean i like the elephant pen one that's that's <laughs> and i know brian bride's giving us the the key that we're almost out of time all these cute little musical musical notes and things thank you brian yeah I, we have to bring up that, of course, being Halloween today, Poltergeist, the original, right. not the pretend. No, no, this remake. was except no substitutes. How exciting was that for you to do that? It, it was great. It came right after Raiders. We had sort of won the trust of Steven Spielberg, and it was a you know a, a creative a tour de force for us. My best. I'll close with a funny story about it. I so wanted to impress the filmmakers about our our zeal for making sound for the movie that I contacted Kerry Gaynor, who was then the head of the UCLA parapsychology department. And he was a true ghostbuster. He would go around the Southwest investigating hauntings. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could go back to Frank Marshall, my producer, and say, Frank, I got the sound of real ghosts. So Kerry and I, Kerry took me along to eight or nine hauntings around Southern California for the course of several months. And I was the sound guy. And I had my boom pole and my little recorder. And I was hoping to capture um, the sounds of ghosts. So all I ever captured was kind of room tone and people, you know, in a dark room talking to each other. Uh, Did you hear something? That's all I ever got. Okay. Well, you made me (laughs) think that there were real ghosts in that movie. So I tried. I tried my best. Yeah, and I think we, we it's, it's only fair to point out that another one of your Space Jam is now going back into theaters for a Fathom event. The original. The original. Yeah, imagine that. Imagine that. On Space Jam, we had a great – I love – because of my cartoon background, I was kind of the right person for that film. The thing I love the most is that they told me that um, Michael Jordan, he had this huge entourage and one of the persons in his entourage was designated as his – scalp it wasn't called scalp polisher but it was a person whose job was to simply make sure that his head was always clean and shiny and somebody got paid to do that and they got a credit for it so go look for that you know i i always look for bizarre credits you know i think the best one i've seen recently was earlier this year on the witch where which is one of the weirdest movies i mean it's cool and the black billy goat's great but we've got goat handler chicken handler (laughs) mental health counselor all together. My favorite is on Star Trek. That's JJ, first JJ Star Trek. He gave me the credit, uh, Mind Meld Soundscapes by. That's my favorite credit. Wow. One of my all time favorite guests, Formosa Group sound editor, Oscar winner, <laughs> Mark you, Mangini. Thank you. Thank That's you. all the time we have pleasure. today. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.